Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Turn with me to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. That is where we'll begin this morning as we study together from the Word of God. Luke chapter 12. So good to see you this morning. We have a number of guests with us. Thank you so much for being here. We're happy that you're here. If you've gotten one of those visitor's cards, please fill that out so that we can have a record of you being here. If there's something that we can do to help you, please let us know about that. Don't leave without telling us how we can help you this morning. But thank you so much for being here. Luke chapter 12, I want to begin reading in verse 13. Luke 12 and verse 13, the text says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is preaching among the people in this text. Thousands of people are gathering together. They're trampling one another. And one of them interrupts him to speak to him about how his brother needs to share the inheritance with him. And if you notice, there is a a subtle distinction in the text. In verse 13, I'm sorry, verse 14, it says, He said to him, and then in verse 15, He said to them. Jesus makes an example out of the man. He tells him first, it's not my job. Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he says in verse 15, to the crowd, take care and beware of all covetousness. He embarrasses the man. And he should be embarrassed. Because he has taken this great opportunity to hear the gospel and instead turned it into something that's just about him. But when Jesus talks about covetousness, I want you to notice the reason he gives why this matters. In verse 15, this is the important part. In verse 15 it says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not your life. You are not your stuff. This man has a problem, not just a problem in terms of money and how he manages his money and thinks about his money and wants money. His problem is deeper. His problem is he thinks his life consists in the abundance of the things he possesses. In other words, he has struggled to answer rightly the question, just who am I? He thinks I am my stuff. And if I get more stuff, then I can be content If I get more stuff, then everything will go well. If my brother would just divide the inheritance, everything would go great. Kind of sounds like our contentment class, doesn't it? And Jesus says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not who you are. That's not what matters about you. You are not your bank statement. You are not your house payment. You are not your stuff. And so it leads us to ask the question, well, what does life consist of? Who am I, really? And that's the question I want us to examine this morning. We're not going to talk about covetousness and money, except sort of at glancing blows. We're going to talk about the deeper question. To begin with, I want to address what we might say are some false sources of identity, some wrong answers to this question, who am I? And these are things that all of us from time to time get wrapped up in. So for some... The answer to the question, who am I, is I am what I own. That's the guy that we're talking about here. He identifies himself by his money. And we can do this too. See, we evaluate ourselves and others by our income. How much do we make? That means how much we matter, how important we are, how successful we are. 
Where do I eat? Where do I shop? What do I wear? And so I feel good if I am what I own. I feel good when I have more, when I have nicer, when I have better. I like to flaunt my stuff because you need to see my stuff. If I have need and interesting stuff, that means I'm need and interesting. See? If I have a nice car, it means I'm nice. Everything about me is reflected in what I own. For some, the source of identity is I am what I look like. Physical appearance becomes the important criteria. So we say, if I'm handsome, if I'm beautiful, I'm valuable. And other people are valuable too, if they are handsome or they are beautiful. I need to accentuate my looks. I need to always be concerned about aging because my looks are going to fade as I age. Other people then become, well, they become rivals. We're competing for the same attention, the same, you know, if they're more beautiful, more handsome than I am, then that's a problem. And so I don't know if I can have a good relationship with them. Some people define themselves by saying, I am my job, that my work redefines me because a job gives me a title and it gives me this whole cluster of responsibilities and things you can know about my personality. As long as you know what I do, you know me. So I'm not just a man anymore. Now I'm a teacher. Now I'm an engineer. Now I'm a fireman. You know something about me because you know what I do. And when I invest myself in my job, I need to tell other people what I do. I need to. I am comfortable, if this is my identity, working harder at my job than at any other thing in my life. And by the way, it's a sign of our twisted society that that's not a strange statement. I'm willing to work harder at my job than in any other part of my life. So a worst-case scenario when I am my job is that I lose my job or that I age to the point that I can't find the job that I've fought for so long has defined me. For some, the source of identity is I am what others think about me. So if this is me, I love to hear compliments. I thrive on compliments. And when I upset others or other people are angry with me, it's deeply upsetting to me. It affects me deeply. A worst case scenario in this mind is when I have two people who are pulling me in opposite directions, and I value both of their opinions. How can I make everyone happy? Is the question for someone who always identifies with what others think about them. Sometimes I'll be tempted in this mindset to lie or soften the truth if it'll make you think better about me. I don't want to tell you what's really going on. I don't want to tell you how I really feel because then you might think bad about me, and that would affect who I am. For some, identity comes from the idea I am my problems. That when I think of myself, I think first of my struggles. You know, I'm a hothead. Or I'm an addict. Or I have trouble with my mouth. And that becomes who I am. That becomes the way I could best describe myself to you. So I look back in shame and my failures. And I can't see around them. I can't think of myself in any other way than by these things. For some, my identity is that I am a victim I've had awful things happen to me in my life, and my traumas seem to be greater than everybody else's traumas. They're a bigger deal. So to understand me, you've got to know about everything that's happened to me. So maybe my, my father died when I was young, or maybe my father was a deadbeat. Maybe my husband is unfair or unkind. Maybe my wife is unable to have children. 
Maybe I struggle finding good work. Maybe my health has always been bad. But none of it, in my view, seems fair. You see, all of it just conspires to say, this is just my life. It just always happens to me. This is just what I always expect. And so life for the one who defines themselves as a victim is just waiting for the other shoe to drop at all times. If anything good happens, it's just a matter of time before the bad thing follows right behind it. I am a victim means I begin to expect people to let me down. I begin to expect there to be problems around every corner. And I really long for the sympathy of other people. That's what I'm really after. People need to understand just how bad I have it. And then they'll address me appropriately. They'll feel sorry for me the way I deserve. And another source of identity is I am what I am against. For some people, when they look at life, what they see, when they look at the world, what they see, is a world full of terrible dangers and moral missteps and political problems. And my job, my role, my identity is I have to stand against them. And so I am against so many things. Moral issues like homosexuality and abortion and drinking and dancing and cussing and pornography and adultery and, 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 and all we could go. Yet when the dust settles, I have no idea who I am. I know only who I am not. I am not all of these things and I'm against them. But I don't know who I am. I don't know where you fit in this series. There are a number of these that I have dabbled in. Some of them have come to define me more than others. But I suspect that somewhere in this list you'll find yourself. And there will be an uncomfortable realization about that. My goal this morning is for us to be able to answer the question, who am I? from a biblical perspective, so that we can eliminate these false sources of identity and cling to what God wants us to know about who we are. So let's do that. First of all, who am I? I am, to begin with, a special creation of God. I want you to go with me to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Psalm 139 emphasizes the deep, intimate knowledge God has of us. He knows us inside and out. This is what he says about it. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. God knows me completely, inside and out. You know me from afar. You don't even need to get close and investigate me. You know when I lay down and when I rise up. You know what's in my heart. You know what I'm going to do before I do it. You know me completely. Nothing God sees in me surprises God. I'm not going to impress Him. He already knows me. 
Drop down to verse 13 of the psalm. Psalm 139 and verse 13, he says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God formed my inward parts, he says in verse 13, knitted me together in my mother's womb. Each one of us was specially made by God. We are special to Him. That means something. The Bible teaches us that God created man in His own image. That each one of us bears the image of God. We belong to Him in a unique way. He is our creator. Not just in the sense that long ago, book of Genesis, God started everything off and created the world. Not only that. These verses describe creation in the sense that each one of us is specially made by God. And that means that we are each utterly unique. I have a brother that looks almost exactly like me. In fact, I think he's going to be here next week. You'll see. We look a lot alike. But we're not the same. You could talk to twins and parents of twins. They can even look exactly alike. They're not the same. Each one of us is a special creation of God. God made us with unique appearances and unique talents and skills, unique personalities. God did that. God is responsible for that. We are His creation. And if I have any sense of self-esteem and self-worth, it is going to come from the fact, not that other people like me or don't, Not that I compare well to other people. Not that I make a bunch of money. If I have any sense that I am worthwhile and valuable, it comes from the fact that I am created in the image of God. I am His special creation. And that I have a purpose because of that. That's who I am. Second, I am the object of God's love. Let's go to John chapter 3. John 3. Not only did God make me, but this verse is going to teach us that God loves me. And that God loves me to a degree, as has already been stated when we were talking about the Lord's Supper. It is a degree that is mind-boggling. It is a love that's beyond us. John 3 and verse 16. Jesus says, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world, the world that was in rebellion to Him, the world that was destined to perish because of its sin. God loved the world. God did not love the world because the world was worthy of His love, because the world deserved His love. That's the opposite of the case. But God loved the world in spite of what the people in the world had done. But one of the struggles I have with John 3.16 is that very often I read the verse and and it's easy for us to say, you know, God loves everyone. God loves the world. And it is much more challenging to think that God loves me. Because after all, I know what I've done. I know where my heart has been. 
and to think that God loves me, to me, is a more difficult task. And so one of the things that I like to do as I read this verse is to substitute the world for my name. I would recommend you do it with your name, not mine. For God so loved Jacob that he gave his only begotten son. God loved me enough for Jesus to die for me. I am the object of God's love because I'm a part of the world, the world that God loves so much. So what that means, if you put that together with the first point, is that God knows me inside and out. God knows everything about me. He knows my heart. He knows my actions. He knows what I've done in the past, even those things other people don't know. And yet God loves me anyway. God knows me completely and loves me anyway. And that's what we seek in our relationships. We seek someone who will know us and not run away screaming. Somebody who will know us, really know us, know what we're thinking, know what we've done, and who will love us anyway. And we already have it because we have a God who has loved us and reached out to us in Jesus. That's who we are. So you see what happens when we begin to accept God's love. It means that we're not dependent on other people for their approval. That I don't need other people to like me or not like me. If they like me, great. If they don't, that's fine because I am the object of God's love. He becomes the center of my identity. And I don't need to seek that love in others. Third, I am God's sheep who went astray. I want to go with you to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. I find this image to be particularly powerful in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4. Isaiah 53 and verse 4, the text says, Surely he, this is talking about the suffering servant, who is later we know will be the Messiah. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus died, and the text says in a lot of different parallel statements in verse 4 and 5, to carry our sorrows, to be smitten by God for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He died for our sins. But the image that resonates with me is there in verse 6, that like sheep we have wandered off. Like sheep who are there with their shepherd, where everything is taken care of, you have what you need, the shepherd's going to watch over you, the shepherd's going to feed you, take you to water... And instead, the sheep decides that in this burst of just utter foolishness, that the sheep knows best, and the sheep's going to wander off and do his own thing. And he says, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. That willfulness, that decision to go our own way, that's part of who I am. I identify with that sheep because I have been that sheep. And particularly, I love how it says, each one of us, we've all decided this. We've all chosen this, to go our own way, even when it led to disaster for us. So it's important that I acknowledge that. And my identity is rooted in the fact that I went astray. I didn't have to. I chose that. This verse, this section is shot through with those images that I have iniquity, that I have wounds, that I have chastisement that I deserve, that all of these things happen and they are my fault. And if I am going to know who I am in Christ, it is important that I own that. What we're fighting against in this point is the idea that we are victims, that somehow the things that we have done are not our fault, but they're the product of our environment or our parents or our personalities and genetics or in some way we're not responsible. In Christ, we must own our own sin. I am the sheep who went astray. But the beauty of this image is that God did not just leave me to go astray but that God went out after me. Jesus' words are about how a shepherd would leave the 99 sheep and go after the one and bring him back, and that there would be rejoicing when he came back. Jesus' image is of the father patiently waiting while his son crawls back home. That's me. That's who I am. In those stories, I am the figure who was lost and is found. That's who I am. Fourth, I am alive in Christ. I want you to go with me to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 1. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I am the one who was dead in trespasses and sins. I had no hope, and it was my own fault. I could never save myself. I could never do enough good works that I would come back to the flock after I wandered off. I was dead. But something happened. That's verse 4. Verse 4 says, but God. And it's important that we see that, that what changed was not me. What changed was God decided to act. That is what we call grace, that God chose to save me in spite of what I had done. God acted. 
God made me alive. God raised me up and seated me with Christ. God created me as His workmanship, verse 10, so that I could do good works in His name. I am alive in Christ. And what that means is my identity is no longer my sins. That's not who I am anymore. I have been changed. So that's not me. Now I am a new creature in Christ. Now the problems that I had, the sins that I committed, the things that have happened to me, they all become part of a story. But they're part of a story like this. That's who I used to be, and that's what Christ saved me from. They become the prelude to the gospel. And now, I'm alive in Christ. Now, I do good works, but I don't do them to impress anybody. I do them because they're the reason He made me alive. And so I am alive in Christ. And finally, I am a child of God. Go with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. This gets even better because not only did God do all of these things for me in Christ and raise me up and seat me with Him in the heavenly places in Christ, but here it describes a much more intimate relationship that God pursues with us through Jesus. Galatians chapter 3. This image Galatians 3 describes how the law gives way to the gospel. It says in verse 23 of Galatians 3, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we should be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Drop down a little bit. Chapter 4 and verse 4. Chapter 4 and verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God wants to be our father. And here, there is this special relationship as sons. You are sons of God through faith in Christ. Now, in part, he is saying you're sons and no longer just Slaves, but in another way, he takes all the imagery that describes the parent-child relationship, the father-son, the father-daughter relationship, and says, I want you to think everything about that about me. He has sent the spirit of a son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. We are adopted, we are accepted as children of God. So, when Jesus describes God, that's how he describes God. Jesus says, to understand God, understand he is Father. Now, of course, he describes him as his Father and Jesus as Son. But he also teaches his disciples to think of him the same way. 
Over and over again, he says, you need to think about your father. Your father in heaven knows what you need before he asks. If you have fathers here on earth and they give good gifts, how much more will your heavenly father give you good gifts? Your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. Pray to him, our father in heaven. Father, 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 over and over again, Jesus says, this is who you are. You are children of God. I'm no longer just the son of imperfect parents. I am no longer a bank account. I am a child of God. And I don't need what people say and think about me. I don't need the validation of any other human because I belong to him. Jesus teaches me about a God who watches while his son wanders off in the far country. A God who waits while that son comes crawling back. And a God who wishes away his excuses And his long prepared speech and says, bring out some clothes and some shoes and a ring and kill the calf. This, my son, was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. My God says that about me. I'm his child. Now there are some things that attend to that. To be a child of God means more than just a title, more than just a feeling. Very often in the New Testament, being a child of something means similarity. Sort of like we would say a child favors his father. That when we are like God, we are children of God. And so Jesus says, you be like God, you be children of the Most High, in that you love your enemies the way God sends rain and sun on the just and the unjust. Or that you be peacemakers so that you can be called sons of God. But at the end of all of that, the idea is that God wants us to see Him in a new way and see ourselves in a new way. That this is the family that truly characterizes us. This is who you really are. So who am I? I'm a special creation of God. I'm the object of God's love. I'm God's sheep who went astray. I'm alive in Christ. I'm a child of God. I want you to notice the key difference. The only true, stable source of identity is in connection to God. That's the only thing. All of these have that at their center. We properly understand ourselves only in relation to God. We do not rightly understand ourselves in relation to other people. That won't help because what we'll find is that some people we compare well to and some people we compare poorly to. What we'll find is that all the things that we think are so important, like money and appearance and jobs, they go away. And what's left of us? What we find is that properly understanding what's happened to us, properly understanding what we should be for and against, is not about other people. It's about what God says and what God wants. And once we've done that, Once we figured out who we are, all the rest falls into place. I begin to work as to the Lord and not to men. I begin to beware of money becoming a false idol because I know how God warns me about that. 
I allow Christ to address my problems and not just be defined by them. I don't want to be that person anymore because I'm a new man in Christ. I abandon what other people think about me because God's ideas and God's estimations are the ones that matter. I learn to see as God sees when God says the Lord looks at the heart, not at the outward appearance. And so the outward appearance means less and less. I anticipate life and I anticipate what comes after life because I am a child of God. One's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. This is what our lives are. So my question to you is, where are you this morning? As you think about yourself and your life, who are you? And are these things true of you? If there is a need that you have this morning to make a change in your life, to become a child of God, to put aside the things that you've done, to live a life connected to Him, to become His child by being baptized into Christ. If there is any need that you have, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.